As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And the King James Version says, and in you all. Paul, at the time he wrote Ephesians, and we've talked about this before, but I want just to bring this back so we can put it into context. At the time that he was writing this letter to the Ephesians, most likely he was in Rome under house arrest. Um, It kind of explains back in verse 1 why he says, as a prisoner of the Lord. And what I want us to look at is, in spite of Paul being confined to his home, he was still looking for a way to reach out to the churches. And it's exactly what we were talking about a little bit earlier when we said that sometimes our methods have to evolve a little bit into something different. If Paul had been like he did, he traveled around and went from city to city to city building churches. Once he was under house arrest in Rome and couldn't go out anymore, he could have said, my ministry's over. Since I, that's what I've done ever since my conversion. I've gone from city to city and building churches, and since I'm under house arrest, I can't do that, then I'm just not going to do anything. It's not what he said. He went on to write all of these letters to these churches that he had established to encourage them in their walk with God. And what that tells me is that there are times when maybe we can't do what we used to do, but we need to find what we can do and do it with all of our heart. No, not just old people. Sometimes young people, they can't do what they used to do. Maybe because of time and different things. I mean, all of our lives change. Nothing stays exactly the same as it was. And whatever it is, we need to find what it is that God wants us to do at that time and do it with all our heart. Now, prison in Paul's day was a little bit different than what it is today. Back in Paul's day, prison was a place of forcible restraint or confinement. Um, It was used to control behavior and to punish lawbreakers. Today, prison has turned into sometimes a situation where a person goes, wow, I I had it better in prison than I have it out here. I had three meals a day. I had a color TV. I got exercise. I don't have that now. I have medical. I'll just go back to prison. Well, it wasn't quite that way in Paul's day. It wasn't something to look forward to. But Paul mentioned several times of himself being a prisoner. In fact, let's look at 2 Corinthians 11.23. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. He was talking about his opposition, and he was comparing how many times he's been in prison. 
You say, well, how many times was he in prison? Just name a few of them. Paul and Silas were cast into a Roman prison at Philippi. Paul spent at least two years of incarceration at Caesarea. He spent a minimum of two years under house arrest in Rome before he was released. And a lot of scholars believe that he was incarcerated again at Rome a second time, which ended in his execution. So you can see why Paul would make that statement that I'm a prisoner for the Lord. But he wasn't complaining about it. It was almost like he was glad to say that he was able to do that. And wherever I am at the time, I'm still going to continue to work for God. But Paul urged his his readers, as spiritual children, to lead a life worthy of their calling of God. For instance, they were to cultivate humility. They were to cultivate gentleness. And they were supposed to leave behind arrogance, rudeness, and those type of things. He was real specific as to what they were supposed to work on. They were to be humble, to be gentle. He said to be patient because of what they had received from Christ, that they should be patient with one another. We've received the grace of Jesus Christ in our life. And knowing that we didn't deserve that, that should be even more of an incentive for us to be patient with one another. But it's so easy for us to see something we don't like in somebody and automatically just jump right on it, forgetting about the grace of God that was shown to us. Anytime a church is of any size, there will be peculiar people in the church. There will be people that are just a little different. And we can look at that and say, well, I just don't think we want those people. We want everybody. Peculiar, different. I'd like to see this place just absolutely running over with every kind of person you could imagine. Why? Because then I would know that we're doing what the Great Commission says. That we're going out into the world and we're asking them to come in. We are compelling them to come in. Right? If we settle for us four and no more, then that means we're happy with things just the way they are. And that's not why God saved us. And we're going to see that in the lesson this morning. Paul went on to say, since they were all in one body in Christ, they were to spare no effort to remain in unity. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And you say, well, what's the big deal with that? If you've been around churches for any length of time, you've seen that a church can become a place of horrible disunity. If you've never been through a situation where there was a church split, or you've never known anybody that went through a church split, where maybe two people got into a, an argument about something, and they had a disagreement, and before you knew it, in a matter of time, the entire church had chosen sides between these two people, and at some point, they all go their own way. The sad thing is, it would be one thing if they went their own way and established a thriving wonderful 
spiritual church over here and kept this church and it continued to grow and, and just do wonderful things. It doesn't quite work that way most of the time. Because usually somewhere in the mix, there's a bunch of people that get hurt, they get discouraged, and when it's all said and done, you have a lot of people that end up not even following Christ. So you wonder why Paul brought this whole thing of make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit? Because he knew that those things happen. I believe that he probably saw some of those things happen in the churches that he had established. And he mentions that, and then he goes on. I think he, he was writing this letter, and he thought, I think I'll expound on that a little bit. And he goes on and he says that believers compromise, they comprise one body and one spirit. In other words, he's saying that no matter how different everybody is in the church, they still make up one body. Everybody in the church won't be like me. And everybody said, thank you, Jesus. And thank the Lord they won't all be like you. There will be different types of people in the church. Because different people, as we're going to see, will have different callings. But Paul is trying to make it clear that you're to have unity in your differences because the important thing is that you're one body and one spirit. And he goes on. He says that you serve the same Christ. You you confess the very same things of truth. The statements of faith that you've made. They're the same too. You partook of one baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, he could have been talking about baptism in water here. He could have been talking about baptism in the Spirit. In fact, let's read Romans 6, 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He was talking about water baptism. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. He's talking about being baptized in the spirit. So regardless of which one he's talking about, or both, he was saying that there is only one God. There is only one faith. And there is only one baptism, whether it's baptism in water or baptism in the spirit, there's just one of them. Now, what that didn't do that didn't automatically produce a club for people to go beat somebody over the head with. And that scripture was not meant to be used as a club. It was a statement. It was a statement to bring about unity, not to bring about disunity. It was a reminder. And everyone said, Amen. He went on to say that everyone should worship the same God. 
Because there is only one God who is over all, through all, and hopefully in you all. And that was Paul's statement about unity. Now, he goes on from there in verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this next scripture is, he's actually quoting Psalm 68 and 18. This is why it says, and this is a quotation from Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lowly earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, there are people that could take this scripture and spend months teaching on it. We're not going to do that this morning. I'm going to give you a couple different views. What are the lower parts of the earth? There's different opinions from biblical scholars of what that means, lower parts of the earth. There are some people think that when Jesus died... He descended into Hades or hell and he gathered up the dead and then when he resurrected, he took them to heaven. I don't tend to take that view, but there are people that do. Others believe that Christ's descent is his literal burial. When he was taken down from the cross, he was put into a a grave, a cave basically, and that was his descent to the earth. There are others, and I would tend to go along with this, that Paul was talking about the incarnation of Jesus, where God came from heaven as a man to earth in the form of a man. And he came as a human being. So that would be the Spirit descending. And if you read the the NIV, which the New International Version that we tend to use a lot, it's kind of the way the wording says there. But regardless of the view... However you take it, the end result's the same. Christ conquered sin, death, and Satan through his resurrection and his ascension. Whatever view you take of that, study it, research it, write papers and books on it, but whatever the conclusion comes to, it's always the same, that it was God coming to earth as man and his ascension, and that was what Paul was talking about. Now, we'll go back to verse 11. See, it didn't take months at all. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare God's people for works of service, everybody listen to this now, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In those couple verses right there, there is an awful lot that's said. But let's go back to verse 7 real quick. I want to touch on something in that first passage. Paul says, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I think before he got into any of this other stuff, he wanted to remind them one more time about grace. It's only because of Christ and what he did that you have what you have. And then he goes through this explanation and comes back to 
there's apostles and prophets. And if we look back in Ephesians 2 and 20, I think that was last week we looked at it, but let's look at it again. Built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. He's talking about the church. Was built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. So this isn't the first mention of apostles and prophets. Well, let me say that something about apostles and prophets. You cannot call yourself an apostle or a prophet or a prophetess just because you think it sounds cool. And there are a lot of people that do that. There are a lot of people, if you look out there and look at different ministries, and I'm using that term very loosely at this point, that just because they think it gives them a certain status, they will call themselves an apostle. They'll call themselves a prophet. Let me remind you, the Bible gives certain qualifications of a prophet. I'm going to name two. Number one, anything that he prophesies has to follow the Word of God. If it goes against the Word of God, then he's a false prophet. Number two, it has to happen. If he prophesies something and it doesn't happen, then he's a false prophet. Now, I want to show you something I read this week. This is a very, very famous, well-known person, televangelist person. This is a quote talking about prophecy. When I first started, I got nine out of ten wrong. When I first started prophesying, I got nine out of ten wrong. Then I would say you probably weren't listening to God. But he went on to say, but I've gotten better at it. And now... He gets 9 out of 10 right. I would think the Bible's real specific. If you're really a prophet of God, you'd get 10 out of 10 right. But see, it's real easy to go into a city somewhere and call people up one at a time and make a prophecy and then pack up your bags and leave. Because you don't ever have to find out if it happened. The only person that's going to know was you and that person. And you're already gone and you look like a hero. Let me tell you this. Everybody that calls himself an apostle, everybody that calls himself a prophet, is not what they say they are. <clears throat> he called some to be an evangelist. Now normally we think of an evangelist as this guy that shows up in his motorhome or his truck pulling a big trailer, and he and his wife get out, and he walks into the church with a revival in his briefcase, and she goes up to the organ and sings a song, and maybe he sings with her, and that's an evangelist. No. That is an evangelist, but that's not all an evangelist is. Who are the real evangelists? We are. What are we called to do? We are called to evangelize the world. We're called to evangelize our community. What does that mean? Evangelize. It means to go out from where we are and go someplace else. Does that mean we have to move? No. 
It means to go out from where we are in this building and to go out to someplace else and spread the word of God. We are evangelists. There are some given to be apostles and there's some prophets. I don't happen to fall in either one of those categories. Some to be evangelists. I think that's a very common one that a lot of people shun away from because they like to put it in a different category. And evangelism is not one time going out and saying, well, I invited somebody last year. I believe Paul was an evangelist. He was a teacher also, but he was an evangelist. He made this circuit of all these churches he established, and it's amazing what he did is he didn't just establish them and then leave them and whatever happened, happened. He would make another trip back through, and they didn't have airplanes. There's a lot of walking, a lot of riding in these old ships. And that's what he did. He would go back time and time again. And when he couldn't get back, he wrote letters. What are we doing? High Point Church of Brandon, what are we doing to evangelize our community? Are we going out and revisiting those that we visited? Or are we knocking on a door one time and say, nope, they didn't want to go. Knock on another door, nope, they didn't want to go. Well, let's go back there again. No, I already went there. I'm sure Paul went back to some cities more than once before he ever established a church. And I will tell you this. There will be doors that you knock on that you'll have to knock on one more time before you see them show up. And I say that to say this. Don't you hate when somebody says that? They could just say what they had to say to start with. But I say that to say this. If the number one reason that we see people coming to High Point Church of Brandon based on visitor's cards is the Internet, what are we doing? And we'll go on. Amen? When we start seeing, I'm going to back up a minute. When we start seeing visitors' cards filled out that say, I am a guest of so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. I am here today because I got this door knocker left on my door. I am here today because I got this little green card. Somebody handed me last week, and they filled out their name, and there was a map on the back of how to get here, and I decided if they'd go to that much trouble, I'd just show up anyway. I'm here today because there was a bunch of people in my neighborhood inviting people to church. But you know what? We're not seeing that. says there's pastors and teachers, and a lot of people think that these last two are, are grouped together, namely spiritual leaders that are to feed the church through the Word. 
And despite all of the different gifted members, Paul was trying to tell them that they all had a common goal. Even though there's apostles and prophets, there's evangelists, there's teachers and pastors and preachers and all of these different things, the goal is the same with each of them. And that's to spread the Word of God. And not just to spread the Word of God, but to build up the members that are in the church. See, we have to get people here first before we can feed them the Word. And that's why there's some that their calling is to go get, and there's others that their calling is to feed. If you remember when the disciples first, <clears throat> first after Jesus um, ascended back into heaven and they were trying to get things organized, they had, it says they had all things common. Everybody was going and, and putting all their stuff together and they said, we'll just all live kind of and share what we have. It didn't work very well. They found that the, the ones that were supposed to be out preaching, they were spending their time literally waiting on tables of those that were hungry. So they appointed people to wait on tables so that those that were supposed to be out evangelizing could go out and preach and teach and do all those things. That's the way it is in the church today too. Everyone has a different ministry. If Pastor Magine had to come out here and mow the yard, then that would mean that something that he can't do while he's mowing the yard. Bishop Goldsberry. For many years, I can remember, and I know this is a fact because I've been here for a few years, he mowed the yard. He cleaned the church. And I will tell you this, and this is not anything bad about him. I will tell you this. This church, one reason, is not any further along than it is, is because of that. It's not his fault. It had to be done. See, I'm not running for office here this morning, folks. But I'm telling you what God has laid on my heart. If we expect our pastors to be the ones to clean the church and mow the yard and do all the things around the church, when are they going to be pastors? Thank you. We have different callings for one specific reason, that the body of Christ may be built up. When every part is doing what they're supposed to be doing, we will see the body of Christ built up. Now, don't anybody go from here and say, well, he was just 
railing on Bishop Goldsberry this morning. No, not at all. Because he still did all the other things too. He taught Sunday school, preached Sunday morning, preached Sunday night, taught Bible study, and all those other things. But you know what? You can only do so many things in a day. And had a job at one time. But let me tell you this. The Bible specifically says, and Paul was given an instruction to the people at Ephesus, there are some to be called to be prophets and apostles. There are some to be called that will be evangelists. And there are others that will be teachers and pastors. All separate callings. Why? Verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He's saying the only way that you're going to get to where you want to get is when everybody does what they're supposed to do. He's not talking about right and wrong here. He's not talking about morality here. He's assuming that that's all taken care of already. He's saying that when you do what you're called to do, not just got saved and sat, there was no calling to be saved and sit. There was a calling to be saved and serve. Ephesians 4.14 Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. I want to stop right there. If anybody knew about being blown to and back and forth by every wind, here's a man that spent a lot of time on a ship. If you spend any time on the water you will know that regardless how big your boat is, there's always going to be a wave that's a little bit bigger. And that wave can change your direction. And this is Paul speaking in a metaphorical sense because it was something he understood. He had seen these ships that were big ships of the day, and a wave would come along and just change the direction the ship was going. And he's saying, you can't be like that anymore. You can't be like that. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined together and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amazing. He starts off with talking about children and how they're gullible. And we know that. How many times have you been able to walk up to a little kid and go, What do you got on your shirt? And as soon as they look down, boop, and you hit them in the nose. Tell the truth, you've done that. One of my favorite things. Kids are gullible. They're vulnerable. 
And Paul was saying, don't be like that. Don't be gullible. Don't be blown back and forth by everything that comes along. There's, I've read something recently about an epidemic that is striking the church. It's called shifting congregations. Shifting congregations where a church will build up this huge congregation and then something across town happens that's a little bit more exciting and about half of them will run across town because it's more exciting over here. And they're just looking for the excitement of whatever is new. They're not looking to, to build. They're looking to be excited. And I don't mean church has to be boring. That's not what I'm saying. Church can be exciting. But that's not what we're supposed to do. He's talking about building up something. Not going after an emotional high. And because you don't get it at this place, I'm going to go somewhere else because they've got more things going on over there. Tossed around. Tossed back and forth. By every wind of teaching. Told them not to be immature. Paul didn't want these people deceived by every new thing that came down the line. Told them to hold on to truth. Now how do we keep from being deceived? How do we know what a false teacher is? 2 Timothy 2.15 You can probably quote this, but I want to read it. I want to read the King James Version. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing... The word of truth. Study to show yourself approved. Rightly dividing the word of truth. How do we avoid false prophets? Study. If we know what this word says, we're not near as likely to be deceived. If we know what the word says, Psalm 119 and 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against it. Your word have I hid in my heart so I won't sin against it. How do we guard against false teachers? We know what the word says. We said a while ago, how do you tell a false prophet? Because anything that they, they prophesy has to follow the word of God. If we don't know what the word of God says, how are you going to know that? Question. If I say something and it doesn't sound right to you, you should know where to look it up in your Bible to see if it was right. And if I'm wrong, then come to me after Sunday school and say, can we talk about that? Because I don't really think that was right. And you know what? If I was wrong, I'll get back up here and tell you I was wrong. exactly right that's that's what paul was talking about he was talking about listening to somebody preach something and it just be something new and you go that doesn't sound right but there has to be something in your heart the word of god has to be in your heart or you can't say that doesn't sound right if you don't know what it says how do you know when it's not right 
Sure. There are so many people that say just enough truth to get people to go along with it. Because if they got up and just spoke utter lies, nobody would follow it. But you take the truth and intersperse it with, with some falsehoods and some of your own flavor of, te- of what you want it to be, you can deceive people. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the, from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. You just, okay. Somebody comes along and says, This is different, and you go, okay. It's not acceptable. Same chapter, verses 13 and 14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Why would you be surprised that there's people masquerading as an apostle of God? Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And people find out they've been lied to and they go, I just didn't see that coming. It's easy to be lied to if we don't know what the Word says. It's that seeking after something new. The Bible is the Bible. There might be a a new interpretation of something, but the words don't change. The meaning overall does not change. Paul is not saying that, that you can't try something different. Remember we said it so many times. We're not trying to change the message. We're looking to change the method. The method, the message stays exactly the same. That's a lot of times that's the case. Sure. Second Thessalonians three, nine and ten. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. That's not right. We'll skip that one. It's a good scripture, but that's not the one I wanted. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. There are false prophets. But Paul urged everyone to be in unity. Now, let me, let me go one step further here. I am not saying, when I talk about unity, 
that whatever somebody says, that we just accept it as truth. That goes completely against what I said. But on the other hand, that doesn't give us a right to reach some place where we think that we are so above everyone else that we can become indignant. I did some reading this week just to see about some false teachers. There are literally thousands of things out there, if you want to see websites or whatever, that talk about false teachers. And you would say, well, that's great. No, it's not. Because in the way that it's done is so unchristian-like. These people have placed themselves in such a judgmental place that they talk about these other people and condemn them to hell right in public. And they take this person that is proclaiming that they are something that maybe they aren't and just absolutely tear them down. Here's the problem I have with that. Someone who is unchurched, someone who is not familiar with what's true and what's not true, if they look and they see that, and they say, this person calls himself a Christian, and this person calls himself a Christian, and yet they're bashing each other, why do I want to get in the middle of that? Why do I want to be a part of that? You might be right, but how you handle your right is very important. You might have what you consider truth, but God never gave, and I'm using quotations here, truth as a bat to bash people with. Paul called for unity. I can look at a lot of different people that don't believe exactly like I believe. And you know what? With a lot of those people, I can find something that we do have in common. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Or I can choose to distance myself and just all but pick a fist fight with them over it just to show them how spiritual I am. As I grew up, and I don't know if this still happens, Lord, I pray it doesn't, but I remember as I was growing up that there were ministers that would debate certain points. You know what? Discussion is good. Discussing the Bible is good. But I've read some transcripts from some of these debates, and you know what? There was nothing Christian on either side. They got personal. They took slanderous jabs at each other under the guise of, I'm more spiritual than you. What does that profit? Where, what category does that fall in? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, or pastor? I think it falls under instigator. 
There's no place for that in the church. If somebody comes into High Point Church and they don't believe exactly like you believe and you straighten them out and they go away and never come back, praise God. Wrong. What did you accomplish? He says to do it with love. And I'm not saying that you have to accept everything. Paul was very specific. Don't waver to and fro. But he was real specific that you don't go out of your way to show somebody how right you are at the expense of absolutely pushing them away. And he finalizes this by saying that as we do this, as we each find our place and we build up the other parts, that the church becomes what it's supposed to become. One Sunday morning in 1856, a congregation of well-dressed people had been ushered to their rented pews in Chicago's Plymouth Congregation Church. Suddenly there was a commotion near the door. Many turned and looked. Something occurred that had never before been seen by that elite congregation. In walked a 19-year-old salesman. Following him was a motley group of tramps, slum people, and alcoholics. The young man led his visitors to four pews he had personally rented for them. He continued doing this important work each Sunday until God called him into a worldwide ministry. The young man was Dwight L. Moody. The methods don't always stay the same. And the people that show up when we do what God really asks us to do might not fit into your mold of what you think God called. I guarantee you on that morning in 1856, there was some self-righteous people that looked around and said, who do these people think they are coming in here looking like that? Who do you think you are looking at somebody like that? How can we call ourselves Christians if we look down on somebody that somebody has brought in because we don't like the way they look? I don't care how people come to church. If you want to come to church in flip-flops and a straw hat, I don't care. That's right. You know what? I'd rather have you here in flip-flops and a straw hat than not here at all. The problem with these people in this story is that they just would rather they not been there at all. But here was a 19-year-old man that spent his own money to rent four pews so that he could do what the Great Commission told him to do. Go out and compel them to come in. And that salvation was who's for whosoever will. Not whosoever I choose. Me. First Peter three nineteen and twenty. 
through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. It's a good point. If we are doing it right, if we are evangelizing like we should, we will see different types of people walk through the doors of this church for different reasons. And when they do, as Paul told the Ephesians in these passages of scriptures that we read today, we that are established are to be examples for them. That doesn't mean bring them aside and say, um, we don't wear flip-flops and straw hats here at High Point Church. That's not what God called us to do. The call and what Paul spoke to the Ephesians to do was for each of us individually to step up and take responsibility. Might mean teaching a Sunday school class. I don't know what it is, but there's something you can do. It's not like the little boy. Little boy finished first grade, and <clears throat> after he got out of first grade that summer, he told his mom, I'm, I'm quitting school. Really? Well, what are you going to do with your life? I'm going to teach school. How are you going to do that? I'm just going to teach first grade. I've already been through it. I'm not saying that you've been saved a week and all of a sudden God calls you to pastor. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, if God called you and saved you a week ago, there still is something that you can do. And if you pray and seek God, He'll show you what it is. Well, I'm, I'm too old. Paul was too homebound. He was under house arrest. He wrote letters. Well, I just don't think I could knock on doors. Okay, I'll tell you what. How about when somebody visits High Point Church, you could be the one to actually call them on the phone and thank them for visiting High Point Church. Here's your card. Next Sunday, hand it back. Did you get hold of them? No, I called once and it was busy. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Take it upon yourself to say, I am going to reach out to that person. I am going to contact that person to let them know that we want them to come back to High Point Church. Why? Because if they're unchurched, they need to be in a place where they can be built up. That's what Paul was telling the Ephesians. Don't just sit around amongst yourselves looking for something new. Go out and do something. And when you bring them in, then find what your job is and do it to build up the body of Christ. We are called to be rooted and grounded in the Word. Paul used the word mature. 
not blown about. We are to strive for unity. What happens is this verse right here. From him the whole body joined together and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. As each part does its work. Not as each part does someone else's work, but as each part does its own work. And here's what it comes down to. If you don't do your part, it just might not get done. And if it gets to the point where Pastor Magine has to say, well, I guess if this is going to get done, I'm going to have to go do it myself. Shame on us. We have to work. We all have different callings. And when we do what we're supposed to do, we will see individual and congregational growth when we answer that calling. Pastor Machine. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brother David. Shall we stand together?